G'day, and welcome to My Favourite Album. I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon, and each episode I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. My guest today describes herself as a creepy observer, which perhaps explains her lyrical knack for crafting couplets like an emotional sieve, particular and memorable turns of phrase with just enough space for a listener to sift their own lives through. Whether turning her inimitable sonorous voice to her own arresting indie folk songs or the addictive grind of her band Fantastic Furniture, her music tugs insistently at your ears and her debut album, Don't Let the Kids Win, is due out October 7th. Julia Jacqueline, welcome to My Favourite Album. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. Mm. Uh, and cheers. Cheers. Cheers, cheers, cheers. Our scotch of the episode is Shivers Regal Extra. <laughs> so, Julia, what is your favourite album? Um, I have picked Extraordinary Machine by Fiona Apple as my favourite favorite album. I still only travel by foot and by foot it's a slow climb. But I'm good at being uncomfortable, so I can't stop changing all the time. Extraordinary Machine is American singer-songwriter Fiona Apple's third album, which hit record stores in 2005, six years after her acclaimed second album, Win the Pawn. Extraordinary Machine had a tumultuous history, including long delays, changes of producers, and came after a period where Apple thought she might never record again. If there was a better way to go, then it would find me. I can't help it, the road just rolls out behind me. Be kind to me, or treating me mean. I'll make the most of it, I'm an extraordinary machine. So what's your history with Fiona Apple? This record would have come out when you were about, what, 13, 14 years yeah, old? Yeah, yeah. It did, and I heard the title track, Extraordinary Machine, um, on the couch of my first love's parents' house. And I just remember it having a really big effect on me because I think before that, like at such an interesting age with your know, musical taste around them because I guess I was listening to a lot of stuff that I was being told was cool to listen to, which I didn't actually like, you know. Like, I remember going, like pretending I liked corn for a really long time and, like... God, that would have been a struggle. Oh, it was such a struggle. And then, I don't know, like, kind of, like, still just being very confused about what I genuinely liked um, without any influence from, like, my parents or my friends or, like, school friends or whatever. And then I just heard that song and just something about it just, like, hit me really hard and I was like, wow, this is something I genuinely really like and... I'm not entirely sure why, but it just really resonated with me. And then, yeah, it's kind of been a big part of my life ever since. Well, I mean, I guess if you were listening and pretending to like stuff like corn, <laughs> this would have been such a breath of fresh air for you. I mm. mean, the like the musical lineage of it, like the, the jazz and vaudeville aspects of it, and yeah. the lyric is so particular. It yeah. sound like anything else you were hearing. It was definitely the lyrics that really got me. And definitely her vocal tone. I think she has one of the most beautiful voices I've ever heard. And But, yeah, the lyrics are just... 
and they still like I still just are inspired by those lyrics and all of her records I think she's an incredible lyricist so but they were just like just I hadn't heard that kind of stuff before and I hadn't heard a woman like a sing about love like that before so were you mm. listening to many female artists at the time yeah but not like that I guess I guess I was listening to so what I was like 13 no probably not actually you know I was I'd just come out of like my Britney Spears phase and then I was going into the you know, Green Day and Good Charlotte, Corn, uh, that phase. So I think, yeah, that's probably another reason why it really hit me. Um, I hadn't heard, well, I just hadn't been like introduced to someone like that yet. I mean, the song Extraordinary Machine, it's got such a, I mean, there's, there's probably like a really a bad version of this idea for a song. Like, a, like I'm just imagining like a, really bad romantic comedy where where the line in the trailer is the most extraordinary machine of all is the human heart <laughs> it's like a movie about an totally. inventor who spends yeah. too much time with her machines instead of with the person she loves or something mm, well she definitely did a beautiful job with that phrase yeah yeah but it's like she's the extraordinary mm, machine yeah so it's it's this statement of self-assurance in a way in this really kind of craftily put together way that mm. doesn't somehow doesn't seem arrogant at all, but it's just like this kind of... No, not arrogant at all, yeah. Just very self-assured and kind of realising her own power in situations. But it's also like very self-deprecating at the same time. I feel like the whole record is a lot like that. It's kind of acknowledging her faults, but then being like, well, I'm trying. And, And kind of doing it in a light way. Like she never gets too bogged down in this record, I think, in her emotions, which I really love as well. Because I think she has a really great way of turning the song back around on itself to be like, well, this is the way it is, and, like, I'm going to, like, push through it instead of, yeah, feeling sorry for herself, I guess. I mean, there's a, there's a great history of people feeling sorry for themselves in, in music, like particularly in, in folk music. Oh, yeah, totally. Singer-songwriter totally. music. Mm. Do you, how do you find that balance between, like, singing about pain or being self-deprecating without sort of falling into self-pity. I think that that's like a huge, I think that's what she taught me and still teaches me when I am struggling with that kind of stuff because I try with my songwriting, I think, to always have a bit of a sense of humour and it might not entirely come across like that, but just being able to, to remove yourself from the situation a little bit yeah, I think she does that incredibly. I think Leonard Cohen does that incredibly as well, and he would have been like another pick for one of my favourite albums, his first record. I mean, they're, they're an interesting study in contrast in some way. I mean, he didn't start his career as a musician mm. until fairly late in life, and she put her first record out when she was 16. So. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, and she's just a fascinating character as well. Yeah. Like, and I think that's why this record is really interesting, because of the backstory. And I only really learned about that in the last few years, but it is pretty incredible. Well, yeah, the backstory of the record is almost as interesting as the mm. actual content of the songs. Yeah. Because, and I actually don't know if I can think of another instance of this happening, except maybe Billy Joel in the late 80s, which is she made a record. She made the first two records, which were both really well received and sort of put her on the map. Mm. And then she went, I've kind of written all the songs that I had to write now and that's fine. I guess I might not make any more records and for a while yeah. she just didn't, you know, finish any songs. And I think that, that that feeling is really great for 
for me and for other songwriters to hear because I've definitely felt like that before. Like I haven't even released my first record and there was definitely a time when I'd finished it where I was like, well, I don't know if what else I have to say and I don't know if I'm ever going to you know and of course that's silly because I was like 20 you know 24 but like that feeling of that fear of maybe never writing anything good again is there and I think this record was clearly such a struggle for her to finally release it and it took like five years and two different versions of the album for her to finally release it so yeah and the funny thing is the reason they started making it wasn't because she changed her mind and decided she had a bunch of songs or something to say John Brown the producer who worked with her on the previous record I'll do the quick version of the story uh, was was dating an actress who was in a film that he was scoring Punch Drunk Love the Paul Thomas Anderson film and then she broke up with him as he was starting to score the movie so every day he would go into work and look at her face like 50 foot tall on a screen while he was yeah. like writing music for this film and it completely fucked him up and he and he they he had a regular lunch date with Fiona Apple and he just said dude he's like please you need to make a record yeah. I need to do something with my life that'll distract me from all this stuff totally and that's what makes me so sad when I hear those um like the bootleg cuts of the first version because I don't know you can see how much like love and attention and like time and energy went into that first album recording I don't know for for it to then I mean it's out on the internet you can hear the first version of this album but it is quite I don't know quite sad that it kind of got shelved as well yeah I mean it does have a strange history because you know they they cut the record over a, a few different sessions in different places I think some in California some at Abbey Road with all these, mm. you know, this, the, some like the great sort of session guys like Jim Keltner and Ben Tench is on the track and people like that. And then depending on who you talk to, either she wasn't happy with it yeah, or the label like, wasn't happy with it or... Well, yeah, the, some of the stories is that the label didn't hear any singles in it. So they were like, and they were like, it's not marketable enough. But then also I've heard that she, which I can totally understand that she said, I had never played these songs live before I recorded them and so I hadn't lived in them yet and I didn't know what they were supposed to be. And so when she recorded that first album, like John Bryan obviously took over and did the whole thing in the way he saw it and that wasn't necessarily the way she wanted it to eventually come out. So, But yeah, who knows, who knows. That's just what the internet tells me. I think at the time I've heard her talk about, you know, she didn't take much of an active role in the production of the records. Mm. Her attitude was basically, I write the songs and then I turn up and I play piano and I sing and I let the other guys worry about the yeah. arrangements and the, and the production and stuff. And I think that maybe the, a lesson that she learned from this album was that sometimes when you do that, you end up with versions of the songs that aren't portraying what you were trying to say in the way that yeah. you would want it. yeah. Totally. But I think the album that we all know that has Extraordinary Machine was the original recording and the last song, Waltz, uh, Waltz is also from those original recordings, but the rest were all rearranged and um, yeah. recorded differently. Yeah. And you can totally tell, like, they have a very different vibe. A very different vibe. Yeah. Different players, like Quest Love plays on some tracks. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And Jr. plays on some tracks. And, mm. yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where if no one told you, you wouldn't necessarily pick it up. Yeah, but yeah, as but soon when as you, you know, know, you're like, yeah. of course. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm. And it's funny, like, the label not hearing singles because it was such a strange time in pop music in a way looking back because you listen to the record now and you go, 
Well, of course, I didn't hear any singles. I mean, what 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 kind of songs from this record are going to get on the radio? But yeah, in that yeah. period of pop music, it, it was the same time when Rufus Wainwright was first becoming big, and it's like, well, this kind of thing, and Nora Jones. So you could get this stuff played for a period of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So going back to that idea, you know, which she's spoken about of you know, having to live with the songs before you record them. For your record, have you been playing all of those songs before you went into the studio? Or does... um, no, no, not all of them. Um, Pool Party, which was the first single I released, I'd never played that live. And when we first recorded it, we got a bit carried away and it was kind of – we were listening to Nina Simone. I forget what track it was, but it had these really, like, crazy, like, bombastic drums that were just going nuts – and so we had this whole other version of it and the first day we were like, this is sick, this is so cool. <laughs> and then after a few listens I was like, oh, it's just a bit nuts. Like it was a bit stressful. <laughs> and then we, we re-recorded it in the version that we've got now, which I'm a lot happier with. But I can totally see how that can happen when you haven't performed them live, you just don't really know what they're supposed to sound like. And because recording... Well, for me and for a lot of people, it's quite a stressful thing and you also got time pressure and, like, financial pressure and so you can just be like, oh, okay, like, that's fine, let's just do that, you know. So, yeah, I can, I can definitely see where that came from. Cutting it, had you written Pool Party? I was still writing it when I was in New Zealand. Yeah, okay, right. I hadn't. I didn't really have many of the lyrics. I just had this idea. I had the chorus. I had a different guitar line. It was pretty like all over the shop. But then, and I was just had. I had to. I had to finish it because I. I knew it was good. So I was like, I. I want this to be on the record. So I've got to do something. I've got to make it a song. <laughs> so I just stayed up one night, like in the first couple of nights, and. And finished it. Yeah. I've heard versions of that story from a number of different artists and almost always about songs that ended up being the first single from the mm, record. Yeah, yeah. I did not think that song would be the first single of the record. So yeah, that was this that was kind of the the weird one that I was like, Oh I hope this one works. <laughs> well I Bruce Springsteen wrote Dancing in the Dark the night before they cut it really? because the label had born I in the USA and said, well, Bruce, there's not really a single on this record. And he went, okay, fuck you then. And then went home that night and wrote Dancing in the Dark. Oh, what a genius. They cut it the next day. I just love that. Or even like um, more recent example, Pedestrian at Best. That was mm. written, I think, 
either actually during the sessions or during pre-production. Yeah. Courtney just came in with the with the riff and then they wrote that song and that was the single off that record. So. Mm. Yeah, it says a lot for for the creative process, I think, because I was talking to a friend last night about that and how we were just saying how a lot of the time things that you kind of do, it's, obviously there's exceptions to this, but a lot of the time the things that you do really quickly and just put out there end up being the best because you just don't overanalyze it and you don't like listen to 7,000 mixes of one song and just pick it apart until it's got like absolutely no soul left. And I think that that's what, yeah, that's what happened for me with that song. I'm glad I didn't, I'm sure I could have picked that song apart a million times and it would be totally different. So, Of course, Extraordinary Machine is almost the the counter argument yeah, yeah. to that because it was incredibly laboured <laughs> over, know, know. and they may and they did multiple versions of all mm. the songs, and you know ended up with a really great record. Mm. But people criticise this record, I guess, for those reasons. Like they're saying that the bootleg versions were a lot better. But then I don't know. I don't, I'm not. I don't. I don't know what I think about that because I've heard the the John Bryan versions, and I do really like them. But I'm so attached to this to the final product that. Yeah, I'm not sure. Wasn't one of the songs on this record the first song that you learned to play? Yes, it was. Um, not about love. The early cars already are drawing deep breaths past my door. And last night's phrases, sick with lack of bases, are still writhing on my floor. It doesn't seem fair that your wicked words are working holding me down. It was the first song I ever learned on guitar and sung, and I performed it at the Excelsior Open Mic Night in Glebe. Wow. Mm, I was extremely nervous. How old were you? I was 20. Okay. Yeah. So you came to guitar fairly Very late. Very late, yeah. I, I mean, before that, like, I could play, like, a couple of chords... But I was, yeah, very late to the party with guitar. Okay. I mean, of course, like you, you play guitar in all your solo stuff, but mm. um, for Fantastic Furniture, your band, you don't play guitar on stage. No, no, I don't. How hard is it to work out what to do with your hands? Yeah, well, that's actually, like, why I did it and why, like, that was kind of the whole concept of that band was to try and do things that make us feel uncomfortable. And me, like, being a front woman makes me feel extremely uncomfortable. So, without a guitar... Well, you fucked your whole career up then because <laughs> you're, like, front woman in two different projects. No, but, sorry, I mean a front woman in the sense that I don't have a guitar. Right. So I actually have to, like, my body's just, like, there, you know, my hands are there. I've got to do something with... Yeah. My body and my hands. Yeah. How do I stand? Yeah, Where how do I, I stand? What, what do I, I do? Yeah. And so, but it's been good. It's been like a learning, a very big learning experience for me because you kind of just have to, sounds really lame, but you just have to close your eyes and convince yourself that nobody's watching kind of thing in a way because otherwise you, I'll just, just constantly down myself on stage just thinking like, oh, you look ridiculous. Like, stop dancing like that so yeah hey it didn't never hurt peter garrett yeah yeah i do feel though a little a little more scrutinized though because i'm a woman i feel a little more exposed without a guitar i don't know why maybe that's just you know i mean that's an interesting idea because 
I think you're right, but I also think that people, guys, think they're more exposed without a guitar because there's something like demasculating mm, by, yeah, about true, not true, playing. True. No, wait, sorry. There's something emasculating about not mm. playing a guitar or not playing an instrument because that's like a quote unquote like legitimizing yeah, credibility inducing thing true. by having an instrument. Mm. Whereas there's kind of there's more of an expectation for women not to play. Yeah. But maybe that's part of it that I feel like maybe people think that I don't play guitar in the band because I can't play an instrument. Right. You know, yeah. and then I feel self conscious about that. And then it's just an endless cycle of doubting yourself, isn't it? It never ends. That that could be like <laughs> the tagline for pop music. An endless cycle of doubting yourself. Yeah. You can never win. You never come to a conclusion with that. But I sometimes wonder if that's true for Fiona Apple because she's a piano player. But she's not always a piano player. Yeah. And like on Extraordinary Machine, for example, I was watching some videos of her playing that the other day, and she's she's standing there. She's not playing the piano in that song. Yeah. So I wonder if she had to go through like an adjustment period to learn to how to present herself or how to feel comfortable without being able to rely physically yeah. on the piano. Well, I mean, from a very very early performance, she she wasn't playing piano. Well, especially the like filmed ones on TV shows and whatnot when she was like 18, 19. So yeah, that's true. I haven't really thought about that with her because I guess most of the most of the footage I've seen is she's not playing piano, but then she obviously plays it on the record and she's amazing. I opened my eyes while you were kissing me once more than once, and you looked as sincere as a dog. Just as sincere as a dog does When it's the food on your lips With which it's in love So I want to ask about the the influence of the lyrics on this record for you. Mm -hmm. Because there's such a particular type of turn of phrase and it's kind of specific, not in a here are lots of details that only apply to my life or here are all the names of the people the songs are about kind of way. Yeah. But just like really interesting word choices. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she has some great turn of phrase in this record. Like I love the opening lines of Not About Love. It's like um, the early cars already are drawing deep breaths past my door and last night's phrases sick with lack of basis are still writhing on my floor. I just love that. I just love that. Um, and the other thing that I love about the song lyrically is like, I love that she explores that side of, of, of love, which I've tried to do, where she's talking about how devastating it is to fall out of love with someone. And I feel like a lot of people cover like being heartbroken or someone like doing you wrong and then you breaking up with them. Or, or, but I don't know, like the line, where, the chorus line, which is like, this is not about love. In fact, I can't stop falling out. I miss that stupid ache. And that just like really hits me hard because that's something, that's a song that I'd been dying to hear for a long time. Like talking about just the sadness of like being very in love with someone and then just not being in love with them anymore and how that can be just as awful as getting your heart broken by someone, I think. Yeah, you're right. It's an unexplored topic because there's, maybe because there's not an, instigator in that situation or there's no one to blame 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's nothing like, and so that's why it's hard to sing about and it's hard to write about because you don't have this person. Like definitely in that song, she is like blaming someone in some way, but the the take home of it is that she's just she's just annoyed that she's fallen out of love with this person and she misses that feeling. And yeah, I just I really 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 love that. I think I heard you say in an interview once, like someone was asking, like, what kind of things do you write about? And you just, there's a list of things. And then one of the things was people you've fallen out of love with. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, I have written songs about, um, a lot of the songs on this, my um, new record are about falling out of love with someone. But I still don't think that I've gotten to the point where I can write about it as well as she, as she can. And I, it's still something I'm trying to, I'm trying to do and... But yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of lyrics in that in Extraordinary Machine which I could go on about. Well, I, I mean, I feel like I can hear echoes of her sort of internal rhythms in some of oh, your stuff. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. She's got great, great sense of rhythm and phrasing. Like that. There's a line in um oh um oh after after all the folder roll and hauling over coal stops, what will I do? And you got to listen to it. Obviously, that doesn't really help with the rhythm side of it, but it just sounds so cool, like how she um, how she phrases it and using the word folder all. Like I didn't even know what that meant until I looked it up. Yeah, she yeah. just stays on the right side of using sort of some ar- arcane language choices mm. without sounding like a wanker. Yeah, totally, totally. And there's another line in one of my favourite songs on the record is Parting Gift, and it starts where she says, um, I opened my eyes while you were kissing me once, more than once, and you looked as sincere as a dog, just as sincere as a dog does when it's the food on your lips with which it's in love. Like, that is so great. That is just so great. Because everybody knows that feeling. But, like, she just says it so well. Yeah. Are there particular songs on your album that you could look at and say, like, this has been particularly inspired by some of the stuff on Extraordinary Machine or by Fiona Apple in general? Uh, Yeah, I'd say um, L.A. Dream, which is one of the songs on the record. Um, It's definitely inspired by her. Uh, lyrically and yeah I mean just I I like to listen like listen to her songs I think they have um great kind of light and shade and and interesting structure wise and so I think a lot of the way I've structured my songs kind of is similar to the way she does it so yeah definitely um lead light which I released today is definitely influenced by her song structure yeah, like not about love. It's a similar thing. I was once a certain when I saw the red light. Out from the pain, I didn't know that there was not greener. I'll keep it secret. 
So when you go back and listen to this record now, when you go back and put Extraordinary Machine on over a decade since you first discovered it, having Mm. learnt to play the songs, been influenced by them, about to release your own record, what's the experience like of listening to the album these days? Um, I mean, it's, it's very different, and it's different in that way that, you know, unfortunately music doesn't... It's, music still hits me very hard, but it doesn't hit you in that way that it does when you're 13 and you're hearing something um, for the first time. But it definitely, it's definitely very nostalgic, and I can definitely see now more like how she managed to, to compose these songs and, and, and more what she's talking about. Because I guess when I was 13, my idea of love and what love meant was completely different. And now listening to the way she's written about it, it... It, the lyrics hit me harder now because I'm like, oh, like she managed to explain this situation so well and now I've actually gone through that situation. I, I'm even more impressed by the way she did it. Um, and, yeah, it's just a very nostalgic record for me because I've had many, many experiences with it. Like I sung one of her songs for my... Um, one of my like year 11 singing exams and I used to cover Extraordinary Machine, my first folk band, and... My dad like got remarried when I was 16 and I went to China for a month to meet um, my stepmom because she's Chinese and I spent a very lonely kind of month traveling around with my dad and the only thing I had on my iPod was Extraordinary Machine. So just, just going back to that feeling wow. as well, being 16 and being really like confused and angsty and like, you know, being on a lot of bus trips and yeah, it just brings up, it's just been in my life for a long time. So yeah. Well, Julia, thanks for talking to me today about your favourite album. Thank you for having me. That's it for another episode of My Favourite Album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myfavouritealbum. Subscribe on iTunes. And if you dig the show, please leave a review. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. Yeah.